Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, child abuse, and statutory rape. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. David Arnold Brown hustled his daughter Cinnamon into a van. His wife's sister, Patty, followed, and David started driving. Both of them already knew what he wanted to talk about. A few days earlier, Patty had told David her sister was plotting to kill him. Cinnamon didn't think Linda was capable of murder, but her dad seemed totally convinced. He and Patty whispered to each other in the front seats. Cinnamon wished they would just drop the whole thing. It had to be some kind of misunderstanding. Instead, David turned to face her. In a solemn voice, he told his daughter he was leaving. It was the only way to stop Linda. Cinnamon's mouth went dry. The 14-year-old burst into tears and begged her dad to stay. David fought hard to stop a smile from playing across his lips. There was one alternative. They'd have to kill Linda first. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll discuss Cinnamon Brown's unstable childhood. Hungry for love and affection, she was perfect prey for her manipulative father, David. Next week, we'll follow the family as David's mind games come to a deadly conclusion. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Long before he was the center of his daughter's world, David Brown was just a face in the crowd among seven other siblings. His mom, Manuela, was a committed 50s housewife. His dad, Arthur, kept several odd jobs to support the family. As David and his siblings got older, they all had to do their part to help out. At 11 years old, David washed dishes at a cafe after school to pay for his clothes and textbooks. A year later, he took a job at a gas station with his older brothers. By 1966, the Browns had settled in Wilmington, California, a tiny town between LA and Long Beach. Because of Arthur's long hours, he wasn't around much, but when he was, he was the fun parent. Unlike Manuela, Arthur didn't care to manage the rowdy household. Of course, David didn't understand that at the time. All he saw was that Arthur was kind and playful, while Manuela was strict and domineering. According to David, her physical punishments bordered on abuse. Supposedly, this is one of the reasons he ran away from home as a teenager. The other reason was Brenda Curgis. 
she was a friend of David's sister and their families were a lot alike. Only Brenda's was bigger and even more strapped for cash. As the oldest of 10, she was more like a second mom than an older sister at home. The responsibility was crushing. By the time she was 15, Brenda wanted out badly. David knew how desperate she was for an escape. He wrote her love letters and poems, vowing to be her knight in shining armor. For the first time in her life, Brenda felt like someone saw her as more than a helping hand. David wanted to take care of her, and he seemed capable of doing it too. He had years of work experience and knew how to keep a job. When they were 16, David told Brenda he'd found them gigs at an old folks' home in nearby Lawndale. It was their chance at freedom. David worked maintenance while Brenda took over the domestic duties. In exchange, they were given their own room, free access to the kitchen, and a small salary. They weren't exactly living in the lap of luxury, but compared to where she'd come from, Brenda was in heaven. She owed it all to David, who eagerly absorbed her love like a sponge. Before we get into some psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. A 2015 National Bureau of Economic Research study examined how growing up in a big family can impact the children. It found that often, parents in these situations have less investment or resources like time and money to give to their kids. Despite Arthur and Manuela's best intentions, David grew up starved for attention. With Brenda, he finally felt important, but being large and in charge came with new worries. At times, David's insecurity bordered on paranoia. It really didn't take much to set him off. For instance, while he was in the kitchen one day, David discovered a switchboard. He found out it controlled a surveillance system that allowed the staff to check on the elderly residents. Even with this reasonable explanation, David couldn't shake the feeling that he and Brenda were being spied on. Brenda didn't want to believe him. She'd felt completely safe during their months together at the facility, but David had never led her astray before. He claimed things weren't what they seemed and she had no reason to doubt him. The teens got themselves so worked up that they eventually called David's parents. Arthur and Manuela drove the 20 minutes north to bring them back to Wilmington. By that point, David had told Brenda all about his mother. If he was willing to go home after everything she'd put him through, Brenda knew he must be desperate to get away from the nursing home. Brenda was surprised to find that Manuela was far from the overbearing monster her son said she was. She got along just fine with Manuela. In fact, the Browns welcomed her into their home with open arms. Brenda had a room of her own and plenty to eat. For the first time, she was able to be a normal teenager. But the more she depended on his parents, the less she needed from David, and he didn't take it well. Possibly in a bid for her attention, he found himself in the throes of anxiety once more. This time, he became fixated on his health. He had constant digestive issues, which he referred to as colitis. 
Though we don't know if he was officially diagnosed, colitis is an inflammatory bowel disease that can be a precursor to colon cancer. Brenda had never heard of the condition, but the list of potential risks sounded terrifying. Pretty soon, David had her convinced that he could develop cancer and drop dead at any minute. The fear of losing him was enough to secure her devotion. Meanwhile, despite his supposed health problems, David functioned like a perfectly normal teenage boy in at least one area, the bedroom. According to Brenda, he wanted to have sex and lots of it. Before long, Brenda was pregnant and the couple decided it was time to strike out on their own again. David and Brenda were still legally children themselves and they quickly found out how expensive babies can be. Neither of them had finished high school, so they didn't have a ton of job options. To make ends meet, they applied for welfare. David wasn't thrilled about it, but Brenda was genuinely upset. She'd grown up on welfare. In the back of her mind, she worried that accepting government assistance was a sign she was destined to become her mother. David promised he would do whatever it took to make sure her life turned out differently. For one thing, unlike her mother and father, they'd get married. Because they were still minors, they needed their parents' permission to tie the knot. It took some convincing, but eventually, they got the consent papers signed. In May of 1970, David and Brenda officially wed. Two short months later, they welcomed a beautiful baby girl. Brenda wanted her name to be unique, something no one would expect. There's an old saying that little girls are made of sugar and spice. Maybe that's how they eventually came up with cinnamon. David was immediately smitten with her and he was determined to be the fun parent like Arthur had been for him. He was all jokes and surprises, leaving the chores and discipline to Brenda. And it worked. From her earliest days, Cinnamon Brown was a daddy's girl and David liked it that way. He didn't want her to struggle the way he had as a child, which meant they needed more money than they were getting from welfare. So he enrolled in the Work Incentive Program, or WIP, which trained recipients for the workforce, but he still needed a high school diploma. In April 1971, he took the GED exam. For a guy with an eighth grade education, David did remarkably well. Thanks to his high score, the WIN program could place him pretty much anywhere he wanted. David was interested in computer technology, a new and rapidly growing industry. He enrolled in the Control Data Institute, a vocational training course for people looking to work with computers. However, the CDI couldn't take him right away. He applied for computer-related jobs while he waited, but nothing came of it. Suddenly, David ground to a halt. Before he knew it, he was back where he'd started, working at a gas station. While he spun his wheels, Brenda blossomed. In the past, she'd been content to let him take care of everything himself, but becoming a mother had given her a new sense of strength, she wanted to be more than David Brown's wife. She wanted to be her own person. She figured the first step was to learn how to drive. 
David quickly shut down the idea. The thought of her gaining any degree of independence terrified him, but Brenda wouldn't back down so easily. She went behind her husband's back and asked a neighbor for her lessons. First, she got her license and then an office job. She became fast friends with her coworkers. David forbade her from spending time with them, but there was only so much he could do. The entire situation infuriated him. He could feel his control over Brenda slipping, so he did the only thing he could think of. Attack, attack, attack. He accused Brenda of cheating on him and being a bad mother to Cinnamon. Instead of falling in line, however, Brenda stood up for herself. And that only made David angrier. One night, the violence building in him finally broke free. He hit Brenda. When Brenda told her father-in-law what David had done, he came to their apartment and threatened to beat David himself if he struck her again. It was possibly the only time David had seen his dad angry, and it was the last time he was physically violent with Brenda. With that, David lost all hope of regaining the upper hand in his marriage. Instead of taking the opportunity to reflect on his actions, he wanted to start over, this time with someone he could mold to his liking. Coming up, David finds a vulnerable new target. Hi, it's Lainey, and I'm delighted to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast Network is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on Parcast's hit podcast, Cults. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. Exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. It's an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it. There are limited copies available, so log on to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order. Cults, inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Now, back to the story. In 1974, David and Brenda Brown's marriage was on a steep and steady decline. By that point, he'd secured his first computer job with Century Data Systems. There, he met 19-year-old Lori Carpenter. Though she was only three years younger than Brenda, Lori reeked with the impressionability of youth. David followed the scent like a bloodhound, but Brenda wasn't as clueless as he wanted to believe. The minute he started going on multiple overnight deer hunting trips, she got suspicious. Sometime later that year, she caught him canoodling with Lori in a cafe in broad daylight. His brazen behavior unsettled Brenda, so much so that she started to grow terrified of her own husband. For weeks, she had a recurring nightmare that he smothered her while she slept. 
She could never say for sure why, but something deep inside was telling her she wasn't safe. Finally, with her boss's help, she worked up the nerve to leave him. While David was at work, she took four-year-old Cinnamon and their furniture to a new apartment. Brenda knew he'd never let them get away that easily, and she wasn't surprised when David showed up at her job the next day. He was angrier than she'd ever seen him, and he had a gun in his hand. Without hesitating, he pressed the hard barrel of the weapon to her forehead. If he couldn't have her, nobody could. Even with a gun to her head, Brenda showed a level of strength David never expected. He imagined she'd burst into tears and beg for his forgiveness, but instead, Brenda called his bluff. She had no doubt the police would nab him in minutes if he tried to shoot her. She told him he'd spend the rest of his life in jail and she'd still be free of him. Her attitude took the wind right out of his sails. David lowered his gun and left. It's telling that Cinnamon was voiceless during all of this. The poor girl was nothing more than an unfortunate passenger along for the ride. Her parents divorced, but Cinnamon's home life didn't get any more stable. Brenda won primary custody and David was relegated to the role of weekend parent. It suited him just fine. He only ever wanted to be the fun one anyway. During the divorce proceedings, David continued to see Lori. As soon as his separation from Brenda was official, he and Lori got married in October of 1974. They spent every weekend spoiling little Cinnamon. It was clear that Brenda didn't stand a chance in the battle for her daughter's affection. For one thing, when David and Lori moved into their own place in Riverside, they rented a real house, not an apartment. It even had a pool in the backyard. Cinnamon relished the Lux amenities, but her favorite part of going to her dad's was that he was actually there. His career was going well and he was able to take time off. Meanwhile, Brenda usually had to leave the girl with a babysitter while she worked long hours. Cinnamon hungrily soaked up David's attention while she could. Finally, David seemed to have gotten everything he'd ever wanted, a good job, a young wife, and an adoring daughter. He didn't realize anything was missing until he met the girl living down the street, Linda Bailey. It was like being sucked back in time. Linda was barely 14 and the spitting image of Brenda around the same age. She was one of 11 kids raised by a single mom struggling to make ends meet. Just like Brenda, all those years ago, Linda needed someone to save her from her hopeless home life. And David wanted to be that person. But Linda was too young for him to pursue outright. So instead, he came up with a plan. He started introducing himself to her mother, Ethel. Pulling out an old favorite, David told her he was dying of colon cancer and hoped to hire her daughters to help him around the house. The Bailey family desperately needed the money, so Ethel said yes. That was David's first step in grooming Linda. 
While the term usually refers to a process in which a predator targets a young victim, it isn't always so cut and dry. Psychologists Jim Tanner and Stephen Blake noted that other people in the target's life are often groomed as well. The purpose of this is to give the offender the three A's, access, allure, and an alibi. David secured access to Linda by hiring her and her sisters. His alibi was that he needed help around the house, and the money he paid them was certainly alluring. But David wanted to make himself indispensable. He regularly dropped by the Baileys with burgers or pizzas and made sure the family never went hungry. As school approached, he took all the kids shopping for nice clothes. He didn't stop at treats and gifts either. He knew the Bailey kids really wanted a father figure. He played with the little ones and acted as a confidant to the older kids. He made them feel cared for emotionally and in their own ways, they all fell in love with him. Once David felt secure in his position, he narrowed his focus to his ultimate prey, Linda. With the entire family eating out of the palm of his hand, there was no one to stop her from falling into his trap. He paid extra special attention to her, seeking her out above the others. He positioned himself as both the father she'd never had and the best friend she'd always wanted. Too young to know better, Linda believed David when he said this was love. From what we know about David's sexual gluttony, he was almost certainly impatient for the relationship to turn physical. Though Linda was barely 15, she knew she needed to take precautions. She went to her older sister-in-law for advice on birth control. But Linda's mom caught wind of her plans. When Ethel realized her teenage daughter was preparing to sleep with David, she realized she'd been duped. David had long since outlived his supposed cancer prognosis. Clearly, he was not to be trusted. Yet when Ethel confronted Linda about the issue, she didn't want to hear it. By now, she was under David's spell. After a heated fight, Linda packed her things and went to stay with her older brother and his wife. With her mom out of the picture, Linda was finally free to take things with David to the next level. We don't know much about David's marriage to Lori at the time, but things probably weren't going well. She must have known about all the time and money he spent on the Baileys. And given the way their relationship started, she probably suspected David was being unfaithful. It wasn't a shock when the pair got divorced in 1978, after four years together. Soon afterward, David and Linda announced their plans to become official, but she was still 17 and needed her mom's consent before that could happen. Surprisingly, Ethel gave it with only a little pushback. Perhaps she'd learn that Linda couldn't be stopped where David was concerned. In June of 1979, David took Linda, her twin brother Alan, and Ethel to Las Vegas. They tied the knot in one of the many chapels on the strip. It wasn't exactly a dream wedding, but it was nice enough. The relationship, however, was a disaster. David and Linda spent a little over a month together as man and wife before things fell apart. No one could really say why, but by August, Linda was living with her brother and sister-in-law again. In September, 
David filed for divorce. David later claimed that Linda had a cocaine habit that he didn't like, though no one else in her life corroborated his claims. Whatever the reason, David rebounded quickly and married his fourth wife less than a year later. This time, the marriage seemed to be nothing more than an impulsive move. Even though he'd divorced Linda, the two of them continued seeing each other behind his new wife's back. By Christmas of 1980, David was separated and Linda had moved back in with him. The Baileys were shocked. Linda was young and had plenty of options. Still, she clung to David like a life raft, just as he'd trained her. To make sure he'd really won her back, David showered her with gifts and promises. He said he knew what it was like to be without her now and he'd never leave her again. This time they'd be together till the end. But while David bounced from woman to woman, Cinnamon was shuffled back and forth between her parents like a hot potato. Nearing 10 years old now, she'd grown up at their mercy. If she wore on Brenda's patience, she'd be sent to live with her dad's chaos. If she demanded too much of David's time, she'd find herself back with her mom. She was living with David when he and Linda got back together, and even though her new stepmom was less than a decade older than her, Cinnamon accepted Linda immediately. It wasn't just about pleasing David. She and Linda actually got along remarkably well. This might have been because Cinnamon was around the same age as Linda's sister, Patty. The youngest Bailey had watched from the wings as David plucked Linda from their desperate circumstances. She dreamed that one day, he'd save her too. Knowing how difficult things were at home, Linda invited Patty to visit as often as she liked. Patty started coming over so much that she practically lived with them. Once Linda and David remarried in December of 1981, they invited her to move in officially. It was no accident that by the beginning of the following year, David's house was full of adoring young girls. But as high as he was riding, he was also keenly aware of how much he had to lose. David kept a close and jealous eye on everyone in the household. He actively discouraged the girls from making friends and no one was allowed to come over. He didn't even like Linda and Patty's family coming to visit. Everyone knew that living with David meant being on a tight leash, and thanks to his continued success at work, there were plenty of rewards for good behavior. He spoiled his girls with the nicest clothes and newest gadgets. The gifts went a long way with Linda and Patty, but Cinnamon wanted her dad's attention more than any present. And with so much competition, Sometimes it seemed like the only way to get it was to act out. In a lot of ways, 12-year-old Cinnamon was like her father. For better or worse, she'd inherited his wit and independent streak. But those weren't traits David liked in women. He decided that it was time to teach Cinnamon a lesson. Disobeying him wasn't an option. Coming up, David goes to the extreme. Now, back to the story. At just 30 years old, David Brown had meticulously crafted his dream life. 
He was the king of his castle, reigning over a court of young women and girls who were devoted to him. That includes his 20-year-old wife, Linda Bailey Brown, and two teenagers, Linda's sister, Patty, and David's daughter, Cinnamon. When Cinnamon was younger, he'd left the discipline to her mother, but now that she was living under his roof, David felt it was time to lay down the law. For the next year or so, he and Cinnamon constantly butted heads. Sometime around July 1983, things came to a boiling point. Cinnamon did something to upset David yet again. The details are vague, but whatever she did, it was enough to warrant punishment in front of Linda and Patty. David ordered the teen to strip to her underwear in the living room and whipped her with his belt. Cinnamon took the beating like a statue, refusing to cry out. Taking her defiance as a challenge, David continued to hit her harder and harder. It was the final straw. After a year of battling for David's affection, Cinnamon gave up. She stared him down and said the harshest thing her young mind could come up with. I hate you. However, the look in David's eyes told her she'd made a grave miscalculation. With two other loyal girls, he wasn't the one who needed love. Cinnamon gulped. Shortly after their fight, he sent Cinnamon back to her mom in Anaheim. When she was with Brenda, Cinnamon was able to be a normal teenager. She could make friends and actually spend time with them. But total independence was a blessing and a curse. Cinnamon yearned for more attention from Brenda than she was able to give. It was worse now that she'd also remarried. Between work, her husband, and a young baby, she was stretched thinner than ever. Brenda's patience was a lot shorter too. It seemed like Cinnamon just couldn't win. She ostensibly had two families, but couldn't fit in with either. Before long, she went back to spending weekends with her dad, but she was an outsider now, a visitor in what had once been her home. Life in the Brown Bailey house hadn't slowed in her absence. Just months after Cinnamon moved out, Linda became pregnant. To make room for their expanding family, David rented a house in Garden Grove. It had three bedrooms, one for David and Linda, one for Patty, and one for the baby. Once again, Cinnamon was left out of the equation. David and Linda were nesting in a big way. The new house quickly filled up with brand new furniture. And why not? David's career had been on a constant upward trajectory since his first computer job. Things were going so well that he even started his own data recovery company in 1981. Supposedly, he developed a top secret and highly specialized process of cleaning and repairing damaged memory disks. As the world was rapidly digitizing, his skills were in high demand. By 1984, David was bringing in well over six figures. Linda was proud that her child would never know the struggles she had to endure growing up. As her due date inched closer, she became increasingly protective of that standing. And one person in particular posed a threat. Patty was now 16, 
approximately the age Linda had been when David initiated their sexual relationship. David had groomed Patty just as he had Linda, and over the past few years, the fatherly love she felt for him had developed into something more. Patty's crush on David was an open secret around the house. It had never really bothered Linda, but now that Patty and David were spending a lot more time together without her, it didn't sit right. Almost at the end of her pregnancy, Linda sat at home while David took Patty with him to run errands or go shopping. Linda didn't keep her discomfort a secret. She told her mom that she thought it was time for Patty to move back home. But every time she brought it up to her husband, he shot down the idea. David wanted Patty to stay, and Linda was pretty sure she knew why. As quickly as attention had built up, it all seemed to pass once the baby came in July. 14 years after his first kid, David was once again a father. They named the girl Crystal. David in particular was thrilled to have another little girl in the family. The Browns were happier than they'd ever been in a long time, and Cinnamon was desperate to be part of it. So despite everything that happened, she asked if she could move back in. Feeling more maternal than ever, Linda took it upon herself to have a talk with her. Linda said Cinnamon was welcome to come back if she promised to obey the family rules, aka do everything David said. Cinnamon had always respected Linda and readily agreed to her terms. She nodded her head and promised to do whatever it took to make things work. In September of 1984, she moved back in. One day shortly afterward, she was in the living room with her dad when Patty joined them. She had a strange look on her face. Patty took a deep breath and said she'd just overheard Linda on the phone. It sounded like she was plotting with someone to kill David. Cinnamon couldn't help but laugh. Patty had the worst sense of humor and she assumed it was some kind of joke. It's not clear if Patty and David had discussed the phone call separately, but he seemed to be on the same page as his daughter. Or at least, that's what David wanted her to think. Before Patty could give them any more details, Linda came into the room. The topic was quickly abandoned. But not for long. The next day, Patty brought it up again while she, Cinnamon, and David were out running errands. This time, David was on Patty's side. It was such a fast reversal that Cinnamon nearly got whiplash. There was just no way Linda would do something like that. Cinnamon insisted the whole thing had to be a misunderstanding, but David was adamant. He told his daughter to trust him. He knew Linda was trying to kill him. According to psychologist Dr. Lisa Fazio, Hearing a statement repeated over and over increases the likelihood that a person will come to believe it, even if they knew it to be false when they first heard it. This is called the illusory truth effect, and it might explain why repetition is such a common and successful manipulation tool. The tactic certainly worked on Cinnamon. Over time, David's paranoia rubbed off on her. She caught herself watching Linda, looking for a sign that her dad was in trouble, but the more she looked, the less convinced she was. It seemed like Linda was the same woman she'd always been. 
kind and caring. Cinnamon felt like she was going crazy and things only got more confusing from there. In January of 1985, the entire family was out together when someone asked to stop at a Kmart. By the time they'd parked, baby Crystal needed a diaper change, so Linda stayed behind to take care of her while the rest went inside to shop. Cinnamon made a beeline for the music section with a particular cassette tape in mind. After she grabbed it, she searched the store for Patty and David. She found them in a remote corner of the women's clothing section. As they came into view, it took a minute for Cinnamon to process what she was seeing. Her dad and Patty were kissing. Not like family, and very much like two people who'd done it before. When they finally noticed her staring, David rushed to explain away what had happened. He told her the whole thing was an accident and that he was sorry. Cinnamon didn't know much about kissing, but it seemed like something that was pretty hard to do accidentally. She told him she didn't want to hear his excuses. She was still upset when they made it back to the car. Linda wanted to know what was wrong, but Cinnamon brushed her off. At home, David cornered her. She was never to tell anyone what she'd seen. Cinnamon agreed. She was terrified of what kind of punishment he'd come up with if she did. But she also had another motive for keeping quiet. She didn't want to hurt Linda. It turned out that lying to her felt just as bad though. Whether she liked it or not, knowing their secret meant Cinnamon had unwittingly aligned herself with David and Patty and they were actively against Linda. The three of them were only ever alone while running errands. Cinnamon had come to expect that getting in the van would mean another conversation about Linda's alleged plot. With every trip, the situation felt more desperate. David made it clear to Cinnamon that he only saw two ways out. He could leave forever, or they could stop Linda before she hurt him. They quickly established that no one wanted David to go. That only left one solution, get rid of Linda. At first, Cinnamon only had a vague idea of what that meant. She wondered if Linda could just move out for a bit until things calmed down. But David and Patty didn't mince words. They had to kill Linda. To Cinnamon, the plan sounded crazy. She spent the next few weeks arguing against the idea. David and Patty reminded her that she didn't know the real Linda. They did. David could never be safe until Linda was dead. During one trip to the grocery store, David caught Cinnamon's eye in the rear view mirror. He needed to know if she loved him enough to do anything for him. She nodded. The questions were ridiculous. Of course she loved him. And he knew full well that she'd always done whatever he asked of her. He seemed pleased with her answers, but pushed further. If she really loved him, he said, she would help him take care of Linda. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back next week with part two. David sets his own daughter up to take the fall for his wife's murder. 
For more information on David Brown, we found If You Really Loved Me by Anne Rule extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Scott Stronach, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi, it's Lainey, and I'm delighted to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast Network is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's based on Parcast's hit podcast, Cults. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. Exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. It's an essential read for any true crime fan. You do not want to miss it. There are limited copies available, so log on to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order. Cults, inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who joined them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.